Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> it is super good to be with you. I think we've been planning this for about four years, haven't we? <laughs> it's like a lot of things got postponed with the pandemic and all, but it is so good to finally be here. You know, I was just reading in Acts chapter 17, one or two days ago, and it says there that God determined the times and the exact locations where nations, where people would live. I think you struck the jackpot. <laughs> uh, but one of the interesting things is whether it's the Inuit up in the Arctic or whether it's the Maoris down in New Zealand or uh, Arab nomads in the deserts of the Sahara, people love where God has placed them. And <clears throat> today's the day of harvest. We have the incredible privilege of participating in what I think is arguably the very most exciting era of God's redemptive history. I remember a number of years, quite a few years ago now, was, I went on a father-daughter date with our eight-year-old daughter, Kelly. And in the course of the conversation at a fast food place, I said, so Kelly, if you could have chosen any time in world history to be born and the location, <laughs> Where would, you, where would you choose? She thought for a while and she said, well, maybe when Jesus was doing his miracles. And I said, Kelly, that's a profound, that's a wonderful idea. And then she paused a minute and said, Dad, did they have Burger King back then? <laughs> she was counting the cost. <laughs> so uh, how many of you were able to see the Never the Same video uh, last week in church? And if, you, if, if, if you're not raising your hand right now, I would recommend that you go on Vimeo or YouTube or it's on the Pioneer site and if you type in never the same and add the word Pioneers, it'll come right to the top and it's well worth 17 minutes of your time, wouldn't you say? And <clears throat> little quick story. <clears throat> Shortly, it's hard to believe that was 10 years ago. I don't want anybody coming up to me afterward and saying, Steve, you look a lot older now. <laughs> The time is flying, but it, some time ago I was speaking at a, shortly after that video came out, and that was when my father and my two brothers and I went back to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the arrival of the gospel among a cannibal headhunter tribe that I grew up among, for whom my parents were the first outsiders they'd ever, and, and me, I was six months old at the time. Imagine taking a baby, six months old, into an unknown cannibal headhunter tribe. No self-respecting mission organization should do something like that. <laughs> but God honored it. And I'll, I'll talk more about that story, uh, Lord willing, Sunday morning. So come back. <sighs> but with this, this whole never the same and going back, and uh, so, I, so I spoke in a church in Connecticut, and afterward this woman was just crying, and she said, I can't believe it. She said, you know, I, I, I just felt like something needed to change in my life, and I went online, and I found this church, and I showed up on a Saturday night, and I had just seen this video online, and I come, and here you are speaking. And this video is shown, and it's like God is speaking, speaking to me. She couldn't stop crying, and I just realized afresh, the Spirit of God is on the move. He is active at all times, and He is powerfully working in individuals' lives here in the U.S. as well as in the uttermost parts all around the world. So 
You know, going back there, the 50th anniversary, we didn't know what to expect. Uh, I have two brothers serving in Indonesia, and one of them contacted a Sawi elder who was out on the coast and said, you know, my father and my two brothers are thinking of coming. We'd love to come and visit. And if anybody's interested, you know, here's when we're thinking of coming. And that was the end of it. When we arrived, there were 3,000 Sawi and a few people from other tribes, the neighboring tribes as well, waiting to welcome us and to celebrate the annals of Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God into salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew and then for all the nations of the world, including us. And it's our task and our job now to take it full circle and to keep the baton being passed in the great relay race. So growing up there and speaking Sawi maybe even better than English, um, at least earlier in my years. Uh, and hearing my mom called the woman who makes everybody well. They had a Sawi name for my mom because she was a nurse and she started saving people's lives. Going back 50 years later, there were so many children and so many people with gray hair, I'd almost never seen a Sawi person with gray hair before because they were surviving. Because the gospel arrived and gave them not only eternal life, a significant percentage of the Sawi who repented and embraced the message of peace in Christ, but also a lot of blessings in this life as well, starting to become healthy and so forth. So the gospel is powerful. And it gave me a, a, a perspective. And that's what I would like to, to talk to us about tonight. And you know, to have perspective, I think at least a couple of things are necessary. And, and one of those is we need to have good vision. It's a little hard to have perspective if you've got cataracts. So uh, I noticed one of my friends, a retired businessman from Atlanta, <clears throat> posted on his Facebook, uh, a couple of days ago, he said, I just had cataract surgery and I can't believe how bright the world is. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's a good scriptural perspective. And I actually had a lens replaced in my left eye a little while ago. And now that eye is better than my natural eye on this side. This one's a little yellow. It's like blue light and soft yellow light. And... Another thing that I think we could use is some altitude sometimes. It's helpful not just to have good vision, but to be able to get some altitude so that you can get the big picture and to see where you fit in that big picture. So I don't know if you know this, but the Eiffel Tower was completed in 1889. <clears throat> it's part of the Paris World's Fair. Almost 1,000 feet high. And it was originally intended for 40 years or so, it was the tallest structure, man-made structure. For, it was intended to be dismantled after just 20 years. They didn't envision it staying that long. But after that time went by, people loved the Eiffel Tower. For one thing, it became, they realized this is a great communications mechanism because we can telegraph out to the boat ships at sea and so forth and stay connected with the world. 
But just as much the French fell in love with the Eiffel Tower because it democratized the view. Anybody could afford the cheap ticket to get up there on top of the Eiffel Tower and say, look, there's where I live over there. Look at that landmark. They didn't have to pay the big bill for a hot air balloon that only the rich people could afford. And to me, missions conferences are like that. They keep us in touch with what's happening in Egypt and in Mali and in South America and all around the world. And they lift our perspective to the big picture of what God is doing around the world. I remember some years ago, a friend and I were driving through Colorado and we stopped and we, we realized that here's a helicopter and the Royal Gorge was right over there and for paying, I forget if $75 or something, you could get a helicopter ride. So we got in the helicopter and this was the guy who had, he was a veteran of the Vietnam War and boy, he could fly that helicopter. We were like, uh, one thing that impressed me was the tremendous perspective as he went up and down. But the other thing was, wow, I better hang on tight because this guy was doing acrobatics and flying down in there. And it was just an incredible, incredible, <laughs> memorable. Uh, and that's what missions is like, too. You kind of have to fasten your seatbelts. So fasten your seatbelts. We're going to keep moving here. And I'm going to see how much I can get ground I can cover in the remaining minutes that we have on the topic when you lift your eyes, when you have that clear perspective and you get some altitude in God's harvest, what do we see? And our passage is in John chapter 4. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Surprise number one. But no one asked, what do you want? So he was engaging with the Samaritans. Uh, and they were a little bit surprised, and, this, and a woman, and evidently she'd given him a drink. And uh, so all of this was kind of surprising to them. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back into the town. I'm just picking up the narrative here after the, the amazing converse, conversation Jesus had had. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So you can imagine the crowds coming running. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. They knew he was hungry, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Don't you love that? I have sustenance. I have a source of nourishment and meaning that you're unfamiliar with. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? The disciples were always at the low level, weren't they? They were at ground, they were at sea level. Jesus was at 14,000 feet looking out from the peak of a mountain on the big picture. My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four more months, four months more, and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now... He harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Don't you love the density of God's word? I mean, in these few verses, it's just remarkable how much content there is in terms of critical observations 
about the great harvest, one of Jesus' favorite metaphors. And God being himself the Lord of the harvest. Do you pray to him as the Lord of the harvest? So, fasten your seatbelts. What can we learn about the harvest from the words in this passage? The first thing I want to touch on, and this is just going to be a fairly short, rather adventurous helicopter ride, okay? You ready? The first thing is, missions isn't our idea. How many of you think that you came up with the idea of reaching the world with the gospel? <laughs> uh, not a single one of you. And if you raised your hands, I would say, hey, you're mistaken. Let's, let's get into the word here. <laughs> this was not, in fact, it's a crazy idea. I said earlier, you know, mom and dad taking me and then later my siblings were born out there and capsizing among crocodiles and rivers and pythons in our bedroom and all the things, all the, all, the, all the wild animals that we had to watch out for. I mean, this is crazy. Who did? This is lunacy. And to go to Nineveh, to go to places that we frankly don't understand, much less like or want to be there, humid places, mosquitoes, all the rest, you could go on and on. This idea is not yours and it's not mine originally. No, it's the Father's. Jesus said, it's the Father's, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me, the Father, the Lord of the harvest. The disciples weren't concerned for the Samaritans, but Jesus was. It's a divine initiative. It's a little bit like Abram being called from Ur of the Chaldees out of his suburban environment and not even being told where he was going to go, his destination. Have you ever left on a trip and you have no idea what your destination is? Maybe if you've just got time to kill. But generally, we want to know where we're going, especially if you're getting, you know, going overseas. God has a plan, and his plan is to exalt his son and to place everything under his son's feet. Ezekiel 47 is one of my favorite missions passages. You wouldn't expect to see missions in Ezekiel, but there you see a little trickle coming out from under the threshold of the temple. And then that water in Ezekiel is saying, wow, this is up ankle deep. And then it's knee deep, and then it's waist deep, and then he can't swim in it, and it's going down into the Dead Sea, and it's turning the whole, the whole Dead Sea fresh. And you've got animals, and you've got the Dead Sea teeming with fish, and you've got all kinds of trees rimming. I've been to the Dead Sea. I floated in the Dead Sea. I mean, you don't have life there. It's one of the deadest places. But that is what God is doing. And it's originating from the temple of God. It's originating from the sanctuary of God in heaven. Ted and Peggy Fletcher, uh, my in-laws, Arlene's parents, uh, Ted came to Christ uh, when Billy Graham visited the Marines on the front lines in Korea years ago during the Korean War. Came back and rose in the corporate world, worked for Mobile Oil and Dow Jones, and became the national sales manager for the Wall Street Journal. But he was, he was just loved the Lord passionately, was, leave, was leading co-workers to Christ, would share evangelistically like hardly anybody I've ever, ever met. And, and yet he sensed that God had something more for him. And Psalm 2.8 came to his attention. Back in 1968, he wrote there in his Bible, the margin of his Bible, God's promise to me, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. And he wrote God's promise, a promise from the Father to the Son, but vicariously to all of us as well. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance 
and the ends of the earth, the garbage slums of Cairo and every other location on the earth as our inheritance by faith. And they stepped out, long story short, started sending short-termers to Africa, South Pacific, started visiting China as the door started creaking open in China. Some of these short-termers wanted to go long-term and uh, Washington Bible College and so forth, the students wanting to go. And so Pioneers was born in their home. And today, more than 3,000 missionaries from 80 different pass holding 80 different passports from 80 different countries are serving on more than 300 teams all around the world. Missions is not our idea. It's God's idea. What's the second thing we observe here? Jesus said, him who sent me. Jesus came as a sent one. He's the ultimate missionary. He came from the glories of heaven into our desperate. I mean, talk about a cross-cultural engagement and a different environment. He humbled himself, born in a stable, suffered on the cross of Calvary. Why? Because he loved the Father, his Father, so much that he wanted to fulfill the Father's passionate desire to seek and to save the lost. You know, Isaiah 49, 6, is, you, could, you could say it's Jesus' mission statement because the Father says there, he says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore to me the tribes of Jacob, the people of Israel, and bring back those of Israel that I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. Anytime you see that, world, that word Gentiles, you're talking about the nations of the world, the whole world. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. A number of years ago, quite a few years ago, I was praying, Lord, if, if, what, how could I crystallize my life's mission statement? Because I think that would be helpful. And as, as I spent time just praying and spending quiet time with God, this, this, this mission statement crystallized in my own heart, and that is that my goal in life personally, just sharing heart to heart here, is to glorify God by becoming more like Jesus each day and by using my gifts to their full potential on behalf of the unreached peoples of the world. So I want to become more like Jesus and be sanctified, and I would love to see, that's why we're here tonight, to see uh, whatever, whatever heritage and experience that God has given to Arlene and me and to our family be a blessing to God's people so that they too can be sanctified and take that message to the ends of the earth. Do you have a life mission statement? You might want to think about that. And then it's unfinished. I want to finish his work. The harvest, all these Samaritans coming running, <laughs> Jesus says to his disciples, it's unfinished. It's not done. Here you are preoccupied with your next meal. And to finish his work, Jesus certainly finished his part and he's continuing to finish his work and he was so excited to send the Holy Spirit. Do you, do, you, do you think about how excited Jesus was to send the Holy Spirit to empower his people, his disciples, to do the mission, to carry on the mission that God had given them? And we know it's unfinished because Jesus hasn't come back yet. Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then... And then the end is going to come. And there's still 7,000 unreached people groups around the world. Arlene and I worked among one of them, 50 million people today. It was 30 million when we went there. Since we arrived in our 20s, our mid-20s, among this particular unreached people group, 
They've added 20 million souls who are alive, not to mention all those who have passed. And that's just one of 7,000, or give or take, God knows the actual. Unreached people groups, some of them massive. Millions and millions of people all around the world. So the, the era of missions is not over. God is doing wonderful things around the world, but the needs are still great. It's not finished. Number four, he talks about fields. Have you ever noticed that as you've been <laughs> reflecting on this passage? It's not just one field. He's looking out. There's like multiple fields. And there's the field that you're in day to day, and there's the field in the community here, and there's the field in our country, and there's other nations, but I think, it's my bias, I guess, I think of the fields of cultures, of 6,900 languages being spoken around the world, and of the incredibly challenging Herculean task of crossing the, the Grand Canyons, the Royal Gorges, of worldview differences that distinguish Muslims from Buddhists and from Hindus and from animists and from secularists and from passionate followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sheer numbers of people, we're approach, fast approaching 8 billion people. Now, do you know that 8 billion, it's like, okay, if, if I were to, we won't take the time to do it, but if I were to invite you up and ask each one of us to stand with the heels of your shoes touching the toes of the shoes of the person behind you, and we all stood like that, shoe to shoe, 8 billion people, do you know how long that line would stretch? How many of you think it would stretch at least to Los Angeles? across the Pacific to Tokyo, all the way around to Moscow? Dozens of times. That line of humanity would stretch from here to the moon, back to the earth again, to the moon a second time, back to the earth again, to the moon a third time, back to the earth again, and almost halfway back to the moon a fourth time. And the Lord Jesus died for every single one of those men, women, and children. He's not willing that any perish, but that all should come to faith. Now that is a long line of people. And they're all alive in our generation. What generation would you choose to live in? Our generation, the harvest, the harvest is vast and diverse. We'll keep moving here. I'm going to start speeding up. <laughs> It's invisible to many. He says, open your eyes. Now, even as I'm sharing tonight, can, do, you, do you realize how few believers, followers of Jesus, have a sense of their part, specifically in the mission of God in our time? It's, it's, it's a Gideon's 300. It's a small 51% of Christian churchgoers if you say Great Commission, they have no clue what you're talking about. Another 37%, oh, I think I've heard that term before. It's maybe around 10% that can actually articulate. And yet it's the main mission that Christ gave us to do. 
Jesus said to his disciples, to the, the men on the road to Emmaus, wasn't this an amazing conversation? They had rebuked him saying, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know what just happened over this? They couldn't believe he didn't know what he said. What things? You know, what are you talking about? What things? And then, so they rebuke him and then he turns around <laughs> and he says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then it says later, he opened their minds and said, this is what is written, that the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. He said, that's the message of the Old Testament. How many believers understand, understand that as you were saying, Pastor Rob? So many people live as if nothing important happened between the resurrection and the ascension. When during those 40 days, on at least five occasions, different occasions, to different sets of people in different locations, Jesus gave them their marching orders. And one of those, well, those gatherings, I believe, was the 500 people that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Jesus met with 500 people, and I think that's when the Great Commission was given on the mountain in Galilee. Feel free to prove me wrong. I want to keep learning. But have you ever thought that the Great Commission was only given to like 11 men in some closed room? It's given to all of us. For much of church history, a huge mistake was made. They thought that the Great Commission was just given to the original apostles. And that maybe it was finished. Massive blind spot. I've mentioned here that <clears throat> some years ago I was in in uh, Indonesia, in Java. And I went into a bookstore and there was an Indonesian magazine and there was a picture of a deer that's only found on one island. And I was reading this article about this miniature deer, but I thought to myself, I think the Holy Spirit uh, catalyzed a question in my mind, I wonder if there are people on that island. And if there are people there, I wonder if they've heard the gospel. Long story short, my father-in-law Ted came on a visit. He said, is there an unreached people group that I can visit? I said, I read a magazine about a miniature deer that's only found on one island, and there's like 60 or 70,000 people living on that island. Why don't we go there? And so we traveled there on a boat all night under the moonlight and arrived, and there wasn't a single believer on that whole island. It was all just amazingly, totally Muslim. Wrote a little article about it. And it got published in a, in a magazine about this unreached people group. And two or three people responded to that article. And one of them, her name was Judy. And she contacted us and say, I'm praying about where God wants to send me. And this sounds like, sounds like they really need somebody. So can we come out and join you? And you can help us get to that island. And we said, sure, come on out. And for the last 30 years or more, she's given her life to the task of seeing, and there's, there's the beginnings of a multiplying church and a few handful of believers among that incredibly unreached people group, and Judy is here tonight. Judy, would you stand? We want to just acknowledge. <clears throat> and you know, I really believe that with all these 7,000 unreached people groups that God raises up a small group of people to pray passionately and to work to see those groups reached. And he's not doing it with multitudes and multitudes. He's, he's winning these 
these eternal battles through small groups of faithful people. Okay, so it's invisible to many. It's urgent and immediate. It's ripe for the harvest. He says, he says you, you'd like to save 40 more days in the harvest? No, it's now. It's not for some future, future time. He says, ripe for the harvest, even now, twice. There's windows of opportunity. I picked a stalk of bananas from our backyard <laughs> a couple of weeks ago we, in Orlando. We can, I've got about 50 different kinds of plants in our little garden back there. And I noticed how quickly they went from green to yellow, and then uh, you know, Arlene actually ended up freezing some of them because we couldn't eat them fast enough. And you know what? Spiritual windows of opportunity can be like that too. We need to see those opportunities. I heard a story about a Saudi international student who finished his course of studies in the US and he, before he went back home, he dropped off a suitcase uh, at the international student's office and <clears throat> they said, what, what is this? And he said, it's, it's the suitcase of gifts that I brought four years ago that I was hoping to give to an American family if I'd, never, if I'd ever been invited into an American home. And I don't need them anymore. I'm headed back. Are we seeing the opportunities as God brings them our way? And I've been reading through the book of Acts in my, in my personal quiet time. And one of the things that's striking me is we don't just wait passively for opportunities. We pursue them prayerfully. And we watch for conversations. And we watch for opportunities to get behind initiatives that God brings our way. Urgent and immediate. Number seven, it's the path to reward and joy. The reaper draws his wages. The sower and reaper may be glad together. And uh, again, if you watch the Never the Same film, video, <laughs> and I'm so glad we brought that young man from North Carolina along on that trip. It could have just been one more trip that my brothers, my dad, and I had where we had incredible memories of, wow, that was amazing, but no documentation and no way of sharing that blessing with others. But boy, the rejoicing, and I've been to multiple of these, these celebrations in tribe after tribe in various parts of the island of New Guinea, which is host to about a fifth of the world's languages. As they celebrated one after another, the incredible blessing of the arrival of the missionaries and the power of God. <clears throat> My brother went back one time on a different trip and he writes here, today I met one of the oldest Sawi women alive. That's the tribe that I grew up with. Her name is Ayo, I remember Ayo, which means jungle or forest. When we met, she held me in a very tight bear hug for the longest time laughing and weeping and exclaiming over and over how she knew me as a child. She re recited my brothers and sisters' names and my name. Tivan, that was me. Sanon, Paulus, Paul, my brother. Valerie, Valerie is my sister. She expressed how precious we all are to her and just wouldn't let go. Finally, I was able to break free from her grip and tried to direct the emotions toward conversation though it took some concerted effort. She told me she was a teenager back in 1961 when my parents first made contact with the tribe. 
She softly and sadly named off a list of the Sawi women whom my mother was close to and taught and served and discipled, whose babies she delivered, who have gone on ahead of her. I am one of the only ones left, she whispered with a mixture of sadness and joy. Then her eyes lit up and she exclaimed triumphantly, I was and still am a true believer. Because of your mother, I have kept the faith until now. As we conversed, I commented to her just to see how she would respond. You know, Ayo, I recall quite a lot of violence and death back in the early years when I was a child. Without hesitation, she replied, before you came to us, we were killing and eating each other. Humans eating humans. She continued, when I was a child, I watched with my own eyes a pregnant woman get speared straight through her body. The spear struck her with such force. Without speaking, she placed both of her hands on her stomach and looked down. She demonstrated with her hands how the spear entered from one side and passed through. I'm going to skip a little part here. It's a little bit graphic. I was speechless. Once more, I realized why my parents came to the Sawi and why these beautiful, special people appreciate and love us so much. What an amazing bond we share between missionary and tribe. And I would add, between senders and missionary and receivers. And brothers and sisters, someday there's going to be a huge celebration. We're going to sit down at the banquet table with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the original recipients of God's promise. I'm going to bless you. I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to bless all peoples on earth through you. You're not going to be cul-de-sacs. You're going to be freeways. And we're going to celebrate the fulfillment of that promise. <laughs> the path to reward and joy. I'm just going to touch on a couple more here before we conclude. The eighth is collaborative and multi-generational. One sows and another reaps. For 2,000 years now, generation after generation has been more or less playing their roles, and now it's our generation's turn. turn. Some go earlier and others follow. Some, like King David, gather materials. Jesus said, they're doing the hard work, and others have the privilege of reaping the harvest. This brings great glory to God, and it ensures that there are no superheroes in the kingdom of God. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Robert Morrison went back, went to China in 1807. He was in his 20s. And after eight years, he had a believer, <laughs> the first convert. In another 18 years, he had three believers. Then he died. But during that time, he had translated the Bible into Chinese. And today, estimates range as high as 120, 130 million believers in China. More believers in China than America, quite likely. People like Robert Morrison, generations past, we stand on the shoulders of giants who paid a tremendous price. Ninth, it's difficult. I mentioned the hard work, unimaginable cost. And I don't know who Jesus was referring to here, maybe himself. Others have done the hard work. Later, Philip goes to Samaria and he has a tremendous harvest, doesn't he? In the early chapters of Acts, it's amazing. It's like Jesus' visit here, just for that couple of days, because they asked him to stay. 
prepared the soil for, for more harvest that was gonna happen a couple of years later, whenever. And I could tell you story after story. But Adoniram Judson said, and this is an amazing quote, I, I think of it often, there is no success without sacrifice. If you succeed without sacrificing, it's because someone has suffered before you. If you sacrifice without success, it is so that someone will succeed after. The oak tree grows in the grave of an acorn. Verily, verily, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Okay, two more, very briefly. Number 10, it's propelled by prayer. And I'm, I'm shifting over to Matthew 9 here, and Luke chapter 10, verse 2. The harvest is propelled by prayer. Prayer is the great cycle breaker. Prayer is the foundational. And there's one thing that I would say tonight is the most important element of all that we're talking about. It's that foundation of prayer. You know, for generations and centuries, people have been quoting, you know, the various creeds. And we've been quoting the Lord's Prayer. But I think to myself often, what about the other Lord's Prayer? The harvest is white, the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers for the harvest. So the most important thing we can do is to pray, and the most important thing we can be praying for is for laborers, God's chosen ones, passionate, holy, sanctified people to engage with his work. Arlene and I visited, there were these three elderly ladies that were praying for us for years. We'd never met them. Somehow they heard about us, and they lived in a, uh, housing and urban development uh, kind of subsidized retirement center in Sandwich, Illinois. So we happened to be in Wheaton one time and we said, let's drive a couple hours and let's go see these elderly ladies. And we got there and they were in their upper 80s and 90s. And they opened up drawer after drawer in file cabinets of prayer letters of missionaries. And these three elderly women would spend two or three hours a day together, praying through the prayer letters of these missionaries. And they were so excited. They got so excited we were there. They forgot to make the meal, and Arlene made the meal <laughs> in their little kitchen. We just had such a good time. And I, I thought to myself, these are great. These are the heroes of the kingdom. And here's the cool thing about prayer. All of us can do it. All of us have equal opportunity. Finally, uh, number 11. Have you ever heard a message with 11 points? <laughs> this may be a first. <laughs> number 11, it's short-staffed. And I've, I've already mentioned that. The main thing we can pray for is for more laborers. So when I was 10 years old, our family was at a camp on Vancouver Island in Canada where my dad was from. My dad was the speaker, a family camp, an isolated place. You had to fly in on a little airplane. There were no roads going there. And on the final evening of that conference, I can remember it vividly. My dad had been preaching about the needs of the lost world. And he said, is there anyone here who's sensing God's spirit speaking to you about volunteering yourself or letting God conscript you into this, this great work? 
And I just felt like the Holy Spirit was just like, like speaking to me personally. I stood to my feet. And I remember my father's voice ringing out in that chalet. My own son has been the first to stand to his feet. Will there be any others? To this day, I don't know if there are any others that stood up that night because I was so overcome with a sense of God's, God's calling on my life. I'd already, come, I'd already been called to him when I was five, and this was my call into devoting my life to his global, to the Great Commission. Brothers and sisters, I pray God's rich blessing on you. Come back tomorrow morning and hear Arlene because as somebody said, she's, yeah, praise the Lord, she's been given some good, good experience and great gifts. And you're going to just be so moved by that story and then join us again on Sunday if you would as well. So God bless you. Thank you.